0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: How
2: many gifts did I buy? That's a good question. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Like
1: seven?
0: Uh, Today, just two. One. We got six things tonight.
1: (laughs) As you can hear, the end of year holiday rush is on. People are out shopping for the holidays. Apparently, it's not just a little bit of shopping. The Retail Council of Canada says the average Canadian will drop about $900 this holiday season. A majority of those shoppers say they'll likely be spending most of it on presents for loved ones.
0: Um, nephews and the kids, friends' kids, yeah. My nephew. Getting some gifts for uh, his little brother.
1: Shopping for kids, my own kiddo, my nephews, nieces, and friends' kids as well. Just buying some toys for kids, my son, some friends. Okay, you heard that. It is all about the kids. But how much is too much?
0: Um, I think if you buy too much, then it's not special anymore.
2: I think kids these days have too much anyway. But there's always that expectation that, um, you know, we're exchanging gifts with each other. And so, you know, we try to make sure it's a quality gift rather than a gift just for the sake of giving.
0: That's an impossible question. But when I close my eyes, there's enough gifts under the tree to make the tree look Filled between me and Santa, I guess. I don't think that they want to the sort of amount of things. They, they have their own ideas of what they like, and the size of it doesn't matter necessarily.
1: Uh, some kids had more than one,
2: depending on the item, but I also give cash as part of their gifts. Uh, as my sister said, just give them something
1: small so that way they're, they're grateful, and the cash is really just for the parents to fund their RESP. If only the kids knew about that. <laughs> But really, there is a climate impact to all of this, and that's why we're talking about it. I'm Laura Lynch, by the way, and this is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. With toys, there's often plastic, and that's made from fossil fuels. And then there are the greenhouse gases to fuel the cargo flights and shipments of presents from far away. That toll on the planet got our next guest rethinking what gift-giving is all about.
2: Hi, I'm Nikki Martin, the Program Head of Early Childhood Studies here at the University of Guelph-Humber. Nikki, hello. Hi, thank you for having me.
1: Um, tell me about your earliest memories of holiday shopping when you were a kid.
2: Oh, when I was a kid. Oh, I actually have a a funny memory of really wanting, this is going to sound silly, although apropos for the time, um, I really wanted a Ken doll. My <laughs> brother had broken my Ken doll when I was little, and he popped off its head or something. And I remember being in a store with my mom and kind of... For some reason, when I look back on it, I don't understand why, but I didn't feel comfortable to ask directly. So I was trying to allude to really wanting this Ken doll, so that I, because I had this big Barbie thing going on at home, and I really loved it. I never got my Ken doll, and to this day, it is something that I tease my my mother about.
1: Maybe if your mom's listening, she can get you one now. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm curious, though, also when when you received all of your gifts. And you saw other people open theirs. How did you feel?
2: Yeah, it was an interesting. So in my house, when I was young, um, gifts were often equated with love. And so there was this big gift, this idea of gift giving and there was an abundance. And it almost I remember feeling like it was almost too much. It was like sifting through the stuff to uh, and and things then were it didn't feel as special as I think that they needed to. I love giving gifts now far more than I do receiving them. I love see, getting that right gift and seeing somebody's eyes open and and the excitement of, them feeling seen and really feeling loved by and known by that experience,
1: yeah, it's interesting. In my family, it was one gift at a time, and the focus was on the person receiving the gift. So there's an interesting way to look at the how these things yeah. how these practices play out. but it's also a question of of values and practices. Do they get passed along from generation to generation?
2: Yes, absolutely. And often unconsciously, we in our Western world, we equate love. With things, right? So if I have more things then I am loved, and um, but this comes from our early childhood, and so the any experience that we have in our early lives actually it changes our brain structure, it does all these neurons firing and things. But what that actually does is it teaches us about expectations and how the world works and how relationships work. And so when we are grow up in a, in a home or in an environment where um, how we show our love and is, is through gifts, what the child understands is I am valued by external resources. I'm valued by something outside of myself, that there has to be something I give to feel valued, to feel loved, to feel worthy. And we want to be able to move that inside so that the child recognizes and feels that inside themselves for themselves
1: okay but that that, so that kind of feeling leads to when you're growing up the pressure to buy more to make someone else feel that way yeah Um, is, is, is why do you think so many people end up doing that
2: yeah, I think I think it is something that we learn over time, right? So when we're little, it feels really good and it feels to get a lot of gifts and to get, to get a lot of gifts feels like, oh, I'm so, it's so exciting. It's such a wonderful experience um, and it feels so abundant and so full and so exciting. And I think that then we take that on as, and it feels like when we don't, give that experience to our children and pass that tradition or that generation on that it feels like inside of our, it, like as the parent we're not um we're not sharing or loving enough that we have this fear that the child that our child won't know how much we care or how much we love or maybe it's a lesser experience or the family traditions are not upheld
1: so what is the
2: climate impact of buying all the gifts I think in the Western world, we have a lot of stuff that's in our houses, and especially with children, there's a lot of plastic and and plastic toys and large plastic toys and and things like that that are used for very short periods of time. Um, So obviously being able to to share that and and give it on when you are are done with it, but uh, so that we can we can reduce the amount but when we, if we can model how to live sustainably, how what a sustainable life, sorry, lifestyle looks like for our children, we can encourage and joy and find joy in family experiences and love. And I think that this can address the root impact of the environmental degradation of overconsumption. So the lack of awareness about the environmental impact on our own choices. And if we teach children the value of sustainability and responsible consumption, we prepare them to make a more environmentally friendly decisions for their future.
1: Oh, the conversations are so important, I guess. Um, yeah. so, you, so we have set the stage. We're into the the way to deal with it now. You're a mom. How do you yeah. create holiday memories in your own home?
2: My son and I have had conversations around what how do we share and what what's what are the purposes for us and how do we share our values and and so we kind of got sick of all of the stuff and the pressure that it put on us to have to find that right gift and so for us we've decided that we are we are making each other something so but it's so fun because it actually lasts the whole year and as somebody who material stuff was always really important to me in my early life I've really grown to Uh, appreciate the, the love and connection and less stuff.
1: (laughs) And less stuff. Are there other new traditions that you've adopted in recent years?
2: Right now, what we've been enjoying is baking. So, you know, he is, he is a better baker than I ever am, but it's great because he gets excited and I can follow along and we can create things and then give them out to people. And I think that that kind of generosity helps to fill our hearts.
1: Now, uh, th- there are other family members and friends who may want to give gifts to your kids. I give gifts yeah. to my nieces and nephews. How do you have these conversations yeah. with others about the practice of gift-giving while being sensitive to feelings?
2: Yeah, it is a very, very difficult thing because... And the the only way that I've come to realize this is that gift-giving or giving of ourselves in through something else, in essence is so closely equated with love, that you're right, it does feel very uncomfortable. I think that most things in life, all the good stuff in life needs to be discussed. And I think as a family and as an extended family, making new traditions around sustainability. And so having those difficult conversations with extended family member, or even children in our families that really love getting all of their boxes to feel full, I would encourage thinking about how do you have conversations about feeling full in other ways.
1: But but in those conversations, whether they be with family members or with kids, mm-hmm. do you explicitly broach the subject? Do you make the link between all of this gift giving, gift buying, consumption and climate change?
2: Yeah, I think so.
1: And how do you do that? So. What's the best way to do that?
2: Yeah, I think, I think so, because really what we're talking about is helping to shape a more compassionate and responsible environmentally conscious generation. And I think the world needs us. I think talking about that connection that we have to, we have a connection to ourselves, but we have a connection to everything around us. We have a connection to the world. We have a connection to the birds that fly and the squirrels that run around and, and, um, and the air that we breathe and the sunlight, we have a connection to all of that. And I think perhaps it's about talking about that explicitly so that it's not about our individual needs, but about how we come together for a shared experience in in the world. And I think that that's when we look at it from a sustainability lens. It's about what do we really want and, and being able to provide that, um, and I think it is about explicitly talking about what our values are, about our connection to the world, about climate change and, envirom- and the environmental impact that things have on their transportation or where they're coming from across the world, all of those things. And there's so many resources online to be able to make it into an interesting conversation. And then we can start to think about how can we save the world and how can we save each other and how can we make responsible choices. I think if we have those conversations with children, you'll be surprised. I don't think they need the stuff as much as we think they do. I think that they need the love and the connection because that is what makes us quintessentially human.
1: Nikki Martin, I wish you happy holidays and thank you. Thank you. So are you doing the same thing that Nikki's doing? Are you thinking about how you're giving, what you're giving because of climate change? We would love to hear from you. Send us an email, earth at cbc.ca. Paper or plastic? Oh,
2: I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester. Tea or coffee. For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions,
1: subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. And we've got some time now for some other climate news. Ottawa and Nova Scotia have jointly rejected a plan to explore for oil and gas in shallow water near Sable Island. The island features a well-known park reserve that includes wild horses, grey seals and unique plants, birds and insects. The offshore oil and gas regulator had initially issued a license but that move has been vetoed. The federal and provincial governments said there are broader policy considerations at play and they include a commitment to advance clean energy. A proposed bill aimed at pushing the finance industry to live up to its promises to align its loans and investments with climate in mind was before a Senate committee this week. Senator Rosa Galvez, an environmental engineer by training, introduced the private member's bill earlier this year. At the hearing, the superintendent of the Office of Financial Institutions, or OSFI, Peter Rutledge downplayed the need for the legislation.
0: We hold very firm belief that OSFI's mandate and the objects that flow from our
2: mandate give us everything we need to regulate financial institutions so they manage climate risk responsibly.
1: Senator Galvez wasn't able to be at the hearing as she was in Dubai at COP28. But in a statement, she says Canada is lagging behind its international peers because it's lacking the kind of legislation she's sponsoring. She also notes that Canada's Commissioner for Environment and Sustainable Development says the current OSFI approach isn't sufficient. A new paper published in the journal Science says coral reefs are in peril after a year of record-breaking warm temperatures. The study says historical data suggests there'll be a mass coral bleaching over the next 12 to 24 months. Climate change has increased the heat stress on the reefs, disrupting their intricate ecosystems. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. Well, a few weeks ago, one of our columnists, Chuck Odenibo, told us about a project he's working on in a few rural communities in Canada. So the project is called Community Action for Workforce Development. And the goal of the project is to help three rural communities in Canada. It's a pilot project, so ideally, you know, we use these three rural communities as a model and then apply it to more rural communities if the pilot works. But the idea is to support three rural communities in an economic transition towards a clean economy so that they can become more climate resilient. And then, as part of the project, we are targeting mainly marginalized peoples, um, recognizing that marginalization can happen because of race, language, um, immigration status, um, accent, uh, gender, all that stuff. Recognizing that when you're able to support the most marginalized in the society, you support the entire society in moving forward. That conversation prompted a listener to share her own story of climate activism with us. My name is Rebecca Blyvoot. Rebecca lives in Windsor, New Brunswick. That's about an hour and a half's drive northwest of Fredericton. And this is how she describes the place. It's pretty rural. I've never seen so many unpaved roads. (laughs) Fun fact, Rebecca and her husband used to live in Windsor, Ontario. They moved to their New Brunswick home five years ago because they wanted to live closer to nature and to grow their own food, all while running their Braille publishing
0: company from their home. I don't see um, disabled people uh, represented in the fight against climate change very much. And I kind of think what we're doing is is pretty neat on a a sort of a micro activism level.
1: Rebecca is blind. And it was an adjustment at first, moving from a city to a
0: 10-acre farm. As a, a blind person, honestly, I couldn't really have told you what a carrot top looked like. I couldn't have um, told you the difference between what a chicken egg feels like and a turkey egg and a duck egg, for example, or the difference between milking a goat and milking a cow. What does a piglet feel like? You know, to, to actually pick one up in your in your hands and 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 have it, you know, kind of squirming around in your hands is it's really kind of a wonderful thing. It it adds to uh, a person's sense of the world and. Um, You know, tackling a heifer to try and put a a halter on her is so much fun. (laughs) Rebecca
1: says the more people can get their hands in the dirt, the more connected they may feel to the earth.
0: I guess every time I'm out in the barn or I'm, you know, picking up chicken eggs or mucking out a a stall, I think I want to see more vision-impaired people in a position where they can do this kind of stuff because it's so satisfying. I don't have to go to the supermarket to buy my milk, my eggs, you know, I've, I've been spending the last couple of weeks canning the stuff that I've been producing in my garden. Um, this is, I think this is huge. I think this is really significant. Now, remember what she said earlier
1: about unpaved roads. Despite their best efforts to use their car less, sometimes it's just not possible.
0: Our mailbox is about five kilometers away. So um, one of the things we did quite recently is we we got a horse and buggy so that we could do some of the really local things without having to, to drive the car. That hasn't necessarily worked out all the time. I have to tell you, we, we don't always take the horse and buggy because it takes about an hour to get eight kilometers. <laughs> so it's a, it's a bit of a, an undertaking, but um, we wanted to have options instead of using the car for local things. And we really try to drive as infrequently as we possibly can to reduce our little carbon footprint.
1: Rebecca knows that not all visually impaired people can do what she does. She also says it's not easy to fight the good
0: fight, whether you have a disability or not. I don't know that climate change is an easy sell in rural uh, communities necessarily. We're surrounded here by big agriculture, big lumber, um, you know, powerful companies doing bad things to the environment and not really taking into account the struggle to mitigate climate change. And, uh, you know, I, you can sometimes feel like your own little efforts are, are pretty invisible. Still, she says she hopes what she calls her own little efforts
1: will make a difference.
0: You know, activism can happen on all sorts of different levels. And, and where it really has to start is in your own backyard, right? It's hard work, anybody who does this kind of thing, because, you know, trying to run a business and run a farm full time, as a as as a sighted person, let alone as a as a person with a disability, it's hard work. It's a lot of hours. Um, so I don't know. I just figured that if if I'm sharing my story, maybe other people will say, well, hey, I mean, yeah, that she's right. I've, you know, even even me, little me, can do something.
1: I want to tell you about a story we're working on here at What on Earth? It might be useful to some of you this holiday season as you get together with friends and family at those kinds of gatherings where there's laughter, love, and maybe sometimes some not quite comfortable conversations. Maybe that means a chat with an aunt or an uncle or a cousin who might not see eye to eye with you on some things, such as climate change.
0: Some people are highly concerned and supportive of action. Some people are not right? So if I don't think climate change is caused by human behavior, climate change is not happening, then obviously I'm not going to do anything about it. So if I use facts and evidence to convince you, that's going to backfire. So there are ways to address that communication gap.
1: Communicating about climate change. We'll hear more about that in an upcoming show. all right i'll leave you thinking about all of that communications at christmas time an important topic that is it for us this week though remember you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at cbc listen apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts we are dropping two new podcasts every week so that's you know our continuing gift to you and while you're there leave us a review better yet Tell a friend about us, get them to listen in, and they can tell two friends, and so on, and so on. (laughs) That's all for now. The show was put together by Danielle Piper, Vivian Luck, Rachel Sanders, Matthias Wolfson, and Molly Siegel. Special thanks to Kyle Bax. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
2: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.